From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The future of the Dreamers brought to the U.S. illegally as kids now rests with the U.S. Supreme Court. Governor Jared Polis is invested in their fate. It's also all the companies that employ them. Uh, It's the institutions of higher education they attend. It's their American children or spouses in many cases. Our regular conversation at the state capitol today, does he wish he were back in Congress with the impeachment proceedings? Plus, why Polis says Colorado voters want to have their cake and eat it too. Then, celebrated opera singer Renee Fleming cut her chops in Colorado, and she's back to play painter Georgia O'Keeffe a role a friend wrote for her. Because I said I really wanted to be a woman's perspective, ideally not somebody who's 18. And so when he mentioned Georgia O'Keeffe, I said, that's brilliant. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, Governor Jared Polis, and this time a smorgasbord of issues, marijuana convictions, the closure of a private prison, and a novel way to pay for schools. We spoke Wednesday at the state capitol. Governor, thanks for being with us again. Always a pleasure, Ryan. You were in Congress. Is there any part of you that wishes you were in the House impeachment proceedings right now? Not really, Ryan. I mean, it's not very pleasant. The only kind of side note is, yes, you'd be a witness to history. I mean, this is only the fourth time our nation has undergone uh, an impeachment inquiry. I wish them well in their very serious deliberations, and I hope uh, that they show the wisdom that has traditionally guided the governance of this country in making an informed decision. The U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments this week on the fate of DACA, protection for dreamers brought to the country illegally when they were young. You'll be on a call this week to discuss the program. You say Colorado's 15,000 DACA recipients contribute greatly to the economy. What role can a governor play, if any, if the court allows the Trump administration to end DACA? Uh, Well, I've been a strong supporter of deferred action uh, from its inception. Uh, We, of course, treat our DACA recipients in Colorado, our residents, like any other. We fully support their ability to be here, to work. They're an important part of our economy. It's not just the DACA recipients themselves who would suffer if uh, the decision overturns the program. It's also all the companies that employ them. Uh, It's the institutions of higher education they attend. It's their American children or spouses in many cases uh, who would lose their their partner or their mom or dad. So this is so important. And uh, we are very hopeful that the Supreme Court will not allow President Trump to end uh, the legal presence of 15,000 people and create more illegal immigrants. Those who are reading the tea leaves Uh, seem to think that the court is leaning in the direction of the Trump administration here. The president has said, uh, if that's the case, if he's allowed to end the program, that there will be a solution in Congress. You were in Congress. Do you think that's likely? Well, look, I sure hope so. And I would would also indicate the only permanent solution for these folks is in Congress. The only way we can do it in law to someday give them a route to actually become citizens, to get their green card, only Congress can do that. In the meantime, deferred action is the best that we can do to allow them to go to work without the constant fear of deportation. Uh, And yes, if the Supreme Court were over to turn that, it would put an urgent issue in Congress's lap. Uh, And I sure hope that Republicans and Democrats could see through their differences to expeditiously address that. 
I want to talk about last week's election, the defeat of Proposition CC, which would have allowed the state to keep refunds that go to taxpayers under Tabor, the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights. Uh, This money would have been spent on education and transportation. You supported CC. Voters rejected it by about seven percentage points. In a statement on election night, you said voters want elected officials to do more with their existing tools and that you look forward to working on new and innovative approaches to reduce congestion. Speaking of roads there, what's an approach you'll bring to the table when it comes to reducing congestion? Yeah, so this is really fascinating because, uh, you know, when I'm out and about, people say, do something about traffic, do something about the roads. And at the last three things that have been on the ballot to do that all failed by similar margins. Um, one was bonding uh, with new revenue from a sales tax increment. Another was bonding with no new revenue for roads. And the third was keeping the surplus. So the voters have turned down three ways of investing in our roads and reducing traffic. So what what I think they want, trying to read the tea leaves, is they want us to be creative in those financing solutions, um, which means what can we do with our existing authority, meaning the legislature and the governor, to really address that backlog of congestion. What's your uh, best idea? Well, I think that we want ideas from both sides. And uh, this is going to be a discussion with the business community, Republicans, Democrats. Uh, about meeting our transportation needs. I mean, the start is we included $605 million in this year's budget, but that's just a one-year investment. There needs to be some capital mechanism or some kind of bonding mechanism, uh, as is traditionally done with with construction, to actually make substantial improvements in reducing traffic. But the voters said no to that. Yeah, you look. You know, it's not it's not uncommon that voters always like to um, have their cake and eat it too, right? They want their roads fixed, but they don't want to pay for it. That's very normal. They want funding for schools, don't want to pay for it. So, um, you know, it's all up to the voters in this state. And as I said, the voters have turned down the three different ways of doing it. If voters want uh, elected officials to address traffic and congestion, we have to show we can do more with what we have. I think that I hear you saying then you can only get so creative. Well, it's a question of the law, of course, uh, right? Um, There's certainly uh, bonding mechanisms that we can look at using. Without a vote? Well, there's a scheduled vote in another one. This would be the fourth one uh, for 2020, which is very similar to one that failed in 2018. I'm not that supportive of that. I think they should probably remove it from the ballot. I mean, it already failed once. I don't know why they'd necessarily want to go through doing it again. The voters have been clearly heard that they are not interested in using these mechanisms to fund roads. So it sounds like the creativity that you want to see... You don't necessarily have that yet. We'll see that emerge in the next session. It's really a call for ideas. Obviously, when the voters say no to funding, one of the things that, you know, you look at are these public-private partnerships, um, which are, of course, uh, from my perspective, the last place you go. They're the the least desirable way to build infrastructure because effectively your financing costs are 8 9%, you know, instead of 3% 3% or 2%. This is how US 36 between Boulder and Denver was yeah, financed, for instance. Exactly, the Highway 25 North uh, project up by Loveland, Fort Collins. So, um, you know, it's a way to get it done, but it, it does have higher financing costs than a conventional public bond that has a lower financing cost. It's a better value for taxpayers. Liberal groups are eyeing next year's ballot for any number of changes to Tabor. I wonder if your message to them would be It's time to give the voters a rest on this. I mean, to go back to your election night statement, voters want elected officials to do more with their existing tools. How do you feel about the measures that are sort of cooking right now? Well, look, there's, uh, this is a state where anybody can launch a citizen's initiative, and I don't haven't even kept track of how many are filed. So I don't react to all of those different ideas that people have. But my real goal and my responsibility as governor 
is to, you know, make do with what we have and make sure we save for a rainy day. That's a big part of our budget. You mentioned rainy day. How rainy a day are you forecasting? Well, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not a uh, economic forecaster. What we do know is that inevitably there's economic cycles. We want to prepare the state for the next downturn, whether that's next year, whether it's in three years, whether it's in five years. It's inevitable that there will be a time with slower economic growth or even negative economic uh, growth. And what we want to do is increase the size of the state reserve. Uh, increase the state education fund, which backfills schools during tough economic times, and repay some of the one-time mechanisms that were used in the last recession to free up money in the state budget. So we're hoping to have a prudent state budget. We're hoping that the Joint Budget Committee and the legislature agree and help uh, increase our reserve levels. Back to Prop CC, its failure, two-thirds of the money would have gone to K-12 through and higher education. Do you have something in mind to raise money there? That, uh, back to that notion of creativity. Well, um, you know, kindergarten through 12th grade education is a joint effort of the state and local uh, efforts. So certainly uh, mill levies and bonds across the state actually had a pretty good level of passage. This tends um, to be the way Colorado goes, right? The statewide tax measures tend to fail. The local ones are usually more successful. Uh, Yeah, and that makes sense. People want to make sure that they know that money that they uh, come up with is invested in their local schools or on their roads. So uh, I think we want to find ways to make that work for us rather than against us to really empower people in their communities to better address their funding needs while also making sure we have our eye on statewide disparities in equity. So how do you address those? You can encourage the locals, but how does the state address its issues? So in transportation, one of the things that in we're... In schools, though. Oh, in, in schools. So uh, one of the things we're looking at is how can you do an incentive for school districts to do a mill levy for increasing teacher pay? Meaning um, if you, you know, the state is kicking in 10 cents and they're kicking in 90 cents in areas of the state that either haven't gone to their voters recently or their voters have said no, how can you sweeten that pot a little by adding some matching state funds when they ask their local voters if they'd like to uh, pass a mill levy to support competitive teacher salaries so that they can adequately staff their schools? A kind of state match if local voters say yes to these measures. That That's within your budgetary authority. We have a pilot program of about $3 million that... Uh, we want to work on in that area. Is that a is that a brand new approach for Colorado? It is. It's a brand new. It would be a brand new approach. Hasn't been done yet. It would require new legislation. But we think it can be a good approach, sort of leading with a carrot. And uh, we we hope that that can encourage more local investment in education. As I said, Prop CC also touched higher education. You announced a plan on Tuesday that aims instead of spending more money. Uh, at cutting costs. And one proposal caught my eye, Governor. As I understand it, you would restructure degree programs to give academic credit for work experience. Uh, Why is that important to you? So this is the way the whole economy is going. We are moving towards a skills-based economy. That means what employers are looking for increasingly is what can this person do? And how can we certify that skill level as opposed to just a, let's call it what you know, I have what you have a bachelor's degree, right, which is nice and liberal arts, but it doesn't say what I can and can't do. So how do you move that towards really uh, a skill markation? And how do you apply skills that you've acquired elsewhere, for instance, in the US military or on the workforce? How can those be incorporated in to requirements and institutions of higher education towards reaching a skill certification or a degree? Of course, there's some of that today, but you think this could go further? Yeah, we think so. It's part of the agenda for saving people money on higher education. And that means higher education broadly, community college, college, uh, technical certification, credit for skills. Another one is dual and concurrent enrollment, where students can get 
get their associate's degree while they're in high school at no cost to themselves, um, creating the incentives uh, in our institutions of higher education to have a better time to degree, meaning let's get those five years down to four years and four years down to three years through really looking at that course of study and making sure it's aligned to results. I want to talk about oil and gas just briefly. In 2017, as you know, two men were killed in a home explosion in Firestone, Colorado, and a woman named Erin Martinez was badly hurt. It was her husband and her brother who died. A recent federal report blamed the explosion on abandoned underground lines that caused a gas leak. Here's Erin Martinez. We allow the oil and gas industry to leave their trash in the ground, and then we just take their word for it that that trash in the ground was properly disposed of, and then we allow these developments to come in and build on top of that trash. And, you know, we need to be doing our due diligence to be making sure that if we are going to build around oil and gas infrastructure, then we need to make sure that what we're building on top of and next to is safe. Martinez wants the state to require that all abandoned underground lines just be removed. Should the state mandate that? So Aaron was really the inspirational force behind Senate Bill 181, which put health and safety first with regard to oil and gas development. I've been to her new home. Uh, and currently, the COGCC is doing the rulemaking on flowback and pipelines. This and is so, the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, which now has this different mandate and is right. putting these rules together. They, they have the new mandate to do the mapping and the rules around flowback and lines to help prevent what happened to Aaron's family from happening to any other Coloradan. Do you think those lines ought to be removed? Is that something you'd push for? So again, the Colorado Oil and Gas Commission is currently doing the rulemaking on that. They have the authority to put health and safety first. But look, the days where, as Aaron put it, oil and gas companies can leave their garbage out uh, and, and, and at a hazard to everyday Coloradans are over. You recently reestablished the governor's executive clemency advisory board, and it will make recommendations to you on requests for shorter prison sentences or clemency. In the statement announcing the clemency board, this is interesting. You said, it's quoting here, no substitute for reforming the criminal justice system. What's an example on the horizon of how you would do that? Well, I'll give you an example. I'm certainly, uh, and by the way, if listeners out there meet this uh, category, I would encourage them to apply for uh, pardons or clemency. But we're certainly looking at, for instance, people that were convicted of, for instance, possession of marijuana that is now legal before it was legal, and that's permanently on their record. Um, That's something we would love to help them expunge. But it would take a larger wholesale action to expunge a large number of people. But what we mean is, in the meantime, we're happy to look at some of these cases on a case-by-case basis, help people clear up their record if they've demonstrated that they are committed to following the law. But it's not a substitute for addressing the inequities in our criminal justice system and fixing some of the laws. I note in the budget you've just proposed that you'd like to close a private prison and expand a state facility. Can you tell me why you want to do that? Yeah, so we are proposing about 600 beds at Cheyenne Mountain, a private for-profit prison would be closed, and we would be expanding capacity in uh, the public prison. We are focused on 
public safety. We are focused on reducing recidivism. Uh, studies done in Minnesota and other states have showed that public prisons have about a 15 to 20 percent lower recidivism rate than similar criminals interred at private prisons. And so that is people of, who are in state prisons, state run prisons are less likely to return when when they leave. Exactly. Yeah. So people that uh, when they're released from public prisons, in part because of the step down programs and the work that we're focused on and making sure that they have the skills to support themselves when they're released and don't return to a life of crime out of desperation. Okay, the Democratic presidential candidates have spent a lot of time debating health care. This is an issue that you ran on. Uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have endorsed Medicare for All. Colorado's remaining presidential candidate, Michael Bennett, has indicated he thinks that proposal could jeopardize Democrats winning the presidency. Last month, he tweeted, Medicare for All is not a recipe for winning back the White House. I'm curious... In Jared Polis, as the strategist, do you think Medicare for all is a winning approach for Democrats? Well, look, these days, Ryan, I'm less of a strategist. I'm more of uh, trying to do my best for Colorado. Uh, We are working on the public option here in Colorado. So um, we have a plan to do it. We've had dozens of meetings across the state. We are hoping that a public option, which means everybody starting in the individual market, so everybody who gets your insurance to the exchange will have an additional choice in the public option, uh, estimated savings 10 to 15%, which would be available in 2022. We also hope to expand that to uh, small and medium-sized businesses to make it available for them. That's called the small group market. So that's our focus here. We'll react to whatever comes nationally, but uh, certainly here we want to move forward with increasing choice for consumers. Okay, so 2022, you've heard it here, might be when you have a public option in Colorado. It strikes me that you're, you're not... Uh, going to weigh in on the question of Medicare for all on the national level. We will react in Colorado to whatever they do nationally to make health care less expensive for Colorado residents. Colorado's unemployment rate is 2.7 percent. Many private companies say they're having trouble getting workers. In Metro Denver, RTD is having to temporarily cancel service because it can't get enough drivers and operators. Is the lack of workers making it more difficult for the state to recruit New businesses, are you seeing other effects of that? Um, I would say not yet. Uh, By the way, it would certainly worsen the crisis if our 15,000 DACA recipients were suddenly unable to work the next day or the next week. But no, our efforts on economic development uh, have been very attractive. What we find is that companies from both coasts uh, appreciate the positive business environment in Colorado, the great quality of life. Uh, and, and honestly, they're facing similar difficulties on, on both coasts with regards to attracting the people they need. And, and sometimes in Colorado, it can be easier in some ways because there's a lot of folks that want to move here. Okay. So you think Colorado is better off than some of those other markets that I don't want to say that Colorado is poaching from necessarily. Well, we always but, like to say we're lower cost than we have all the advantages of New York and California and none of the disadvantages. Although the traffic and the costs don't feel quite like they used to. You know what? Uh, If you've been to New York or California uh, and you've been to Colorado, uh, you know that however much we enjoy complaining about our traffic and costs, we're far better off quality of life-wise than the folks on both coasts. You are just back from a trip to India. This is your first trade trip as governor. I note that air pollution is a huge problem in India. The government declared a public health emergency a couple of days before you arrived. Officials handed out 5 million masks to school kids. If I'm a Colorado business, 
Why is that an environment where I'd want to operate? Always exciting to fly into a public health emergency, Ryan. I mean, we were got a little worried when everybody else was wearing masks on the street, and, and I wasn't. But um, look, economic development is a very important role for governors to play. Uh, Governor Hickenlooper, Governor Ritter uh, attended trade missions. I, I plan on going on about one a year. The state goes on four or five a year. Uh, it's for encouraging investment in Colorado. So for instance, we met with Tech Mohindra. They currently employ about 250 people in Colorado. We're hoping to expand their presence here. What sort of firm is that? Uh, they, they do uh, information technology. Tata Group Consulting was another one. So we met with uh, companies large and small about why Colorado is a desirable place to expand their footprint for access to the American market. And we are confident that there'll be good business developments out of that trip. Uh, we also have Colorado companies with a presence in India like Dish Network, and we visited uh, some of their folks over there as well. Do you have concerns that the environment there makes it harder for Colorado businesses to expand to India? Do they have those concerns? Well, the general focus of these trips is expansion of jobs and business in Colorado. So our goal there is to attract capital and jobs to our state. So uh, it's really about how we can encourage Indian companies and Indian investors to invest in Colorado to create jobs and help us meet some of our infrastructure needs. Um, Certainly, just sort of uh, visually and from a health perspective, what's been happening in New Delhi and other areas is an example of why we need to act boldly on air quality here in Colorado. We certainly don't want that to become a detriment to our own competitive environment here. Uh, it's why as part of our budget, we're uh, requesting about $2 million for air quality control, uh, and we continue to move forward with uh, uh, encouraging the use of electric vehicles, uh, multimodal and commuting solutions, and um, are you know strongly supportive of front-range rail to give commuters a additional options beyond single occupancy vehicles. You were in India on election day. Was that a deliberate decision because you thought CC would fail? Did you want to be as far away from that as possible? Uh, no, it hadn't really occurred to me. I mean, this is something that had been planned for, you know, many months. And uh, we, we planned for election day many, many months well, out. <laughs> well, no, what we planned around was uh, actually me appearing before the Joint Budget Committee, which uh, was Wednesday. And I had to, to be there for that. Um, obviously, I was able to uh, track uh, my various friends running for school boards and city councils from India. It was early morning there. So I was able to keep up with those results and congratulate uh, folks who, who won. Governor, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Colorado Governor Jared Polis recorded at the state capitol. We spoke before news broke in the Devon Bailey case. He's the 19-year-old killed by Colorado Springs police. A grand jury Wednesday determined the shooting was justified. Governor Polis's office released a short statement saying, Nothing can ever prepare a parent for losing a son or daughter. The Bailey family and the community must be given space to grieve and move forward. Polis had previously called for an independent investigation into the shooting. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with this voice. Renee Fleming is an opera superstar, and she's in Colorado to play painter Georgia O'Keeffe. This is a return to the state for Fleming. We'll discuss her time in Aspen. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. Some of Colorado's largest employers offer a matching gift or workplace giving promotion to their employees. 
Using a program like this, you can often double your giving impact. See if your company matches on the support page at CPR.org. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Soprano Renee Fleming is one of the most celebrated voices in opera. Her accolades include four Grammys and a National Medal of Arts. Recently, she's performed at the Olympics, the Super Bowl, and for the United States Supreme Court. Well, it was in Colorado where Fleming first took on some of her celebrated stage roles. This is from The Marriage of Figaro. Now, Fleming stars in the Denver premiere of The Brightness of Light with the Colorado Symphony. It's about the love affair between painter Georgia O'Keeffe and her husband, photographer Alfred Stieglitz. Fleming plays O'Keeffe. Renee, thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you. Fans may not know about your connection to Colorado. You were a student at the Aspen Music Festival and school. And I wonder what lessons... You remember learning from that experience. Oh, my gosh. It was such a crucial part of my education because I was there for a couple of summers and came back on a regular basis and really fell in love with it. In fact, Aspen, um, the music festival and everything to do with Aspen was my escape fantasy for most of my career. <laughs> so, you know, I I had terrific instruction. You know, the thing about a summer festival is that it allows for a very in-depth concentrated period of focus. And there's no academic focus. You're not in school. You're just doing the art. And so that's what that that really gave me. And you're doing it in a natural setting that's so beautiful. And that, you know, is helpful as well. Well, this dream of wanting to be an Aspen seems to be realizing because this year you became co-director of the Aspen Opera Program. You'll work with about 14 students next year. What are you most excited to impart to them? Oh, gosh, um, a world of learning. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time, and I've had the privilege of performing many places in the world. Our whole discipline uh, has a tradition of mentorship and of generations passing on what they know. In fact, in fact, until science recently started to get involved in voice science, everything that we learned was traditional best practices over centuries. So uh, I'm sharing all of that, and, uh, you know, and I'm very excited to do it. I understand that when you were first in Aspen, you would often go biking in the Maroon Bells. Do I have that right? Yes, yes. <laughs> that was an almost everyday event. It was, uh, it was hard on the way up and easy on the way down, and those are pre-helmet days, so I'm, I feel uh, lucky that nothing happened. Uh, audiences are too, I suppose. Uh, speaking of, <laughs> of, of going up and down, Aspen's at just below 8,000 feet. You know, singing at altitude is no joke. Uh, how do you handle that? I don't think about it. Uh, I really mind over matter. So the, the fact that I don't ever think about it means that I will have to take the odd extra breath. But, you know, if I were really were thinking, gosh, this is hard because of the high altitude, I'm sure I would find that I would need even more air. Oh, my God. 
you mentioned science as part of opera. And I, I just want to note that you visited this week the CU Anschutz Medical Campus to give a lecture called Music and the Mind. Uh, those feel very connected for you, I think. We can't get into all of it, but how about an example of how the two are linked, maybe in a surprising way, mind and music? Basically, scientists are looking at childhood development and probably more than 50 therapies. But, I mean, my favorite thing is melodic intonation therapy. So somebody who's had a stroke and can't speak in one session with a music therapist can communicate through singing. And, in fact, traumatic brain injury, it's the same thing. So Captain Avila, who who was featured with me in a couple of programs, again, lost speech through a brain injury and through singing could learn how to speak again. When was the first time you learned about that? I wonder what your reaction was. I, I find it, you know, stunning. I found it incredible how quickly it can happen. It can happen in one session. I saw a film at Houston Methodist Hospital, actually, from a music therapist working with somebody. And one, she was asked to kind of prove her worth, and, and that did it. One session, somebody can communicate. That's an incredible gift to give to someone. You mentioned Captain Avila. I think this is U.S. Army Captain Luis Avila. Do I have that right? Yes. What else do you think there is to discover? Or what, what would you like to know about how science could inform music or vice versa? I think what we're going to find is that we don't evolve very quickly. And that's why the basic elements of music, um, uh, including rhythm, are still so much with us and a part of who we are. Ah, there's something ancient. Definitely, yeah. All right. The Brightness of Light, as we said in the introduction, a new show based on the love letters of painter Georgia O'Keeffe and photographer Alfred Stieglitz. You, along with composer Kevin Putz, shaped this particular production. What drew you to the role of Georgia O'Keeffe? Well, Kevin was commissioned to write a piece for me for our alma mater, the University of Rochester, some years ago. And he it was the one who came up with the idea of Georgia O'Keeffe, because I said I really wanted to be a woman's perspective, ideally not somebody who's 18. And, <laughs> you know, so I wanted to be something that I could embody, And so when he mentioned George O'Keefe, I said, that's brilliant. How exciting, because what a maverick, what an extraordinary uh, life she led at a time, uh, you know, showing full autonomy at a time when women just didn't do those things. They didn't move somewhere alone to inhabit their art more fully. Uh, And her career was already extraordinary. So these letters are beautiful and passionate. It makes us all, I think, wish that we were still writing to each other. You mentioned age when you talked about this role. Is there a dearth of roles for someone who's not 18? There's very little. Actually, to be fair, there's very little for lyric soprano. There's a lot for mezzo-soprano or dramatic soprano. Traditionally, they have played um, sort of witches, hags. You know, they're not all positive characters. (laughs) Um, not only is the piece beautiful, the music is beautiful. And to have Rod and me tell this story with the visual addition of the paintings, the, the very erotic photographs that he took of George O'Keefe, and some of the storytelling of their relationship makes it into a really almost a theatrical experience. This is a baritone Rod Gilfrey, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. All right. Before we go, Renee Fleming, I'd like to talk about songs that inspired you as a kid. Could you give us an example or two of tracks that captured you really early on, no matter the genre? You know, it could be opera. It could be polka. 
Well, I was a Joni Mitchell fanatic um, at 18. You know that moment when we used to receive LPs and sometimes cassette tapes Mm -hmm. uh, in my generation? And the moment that somebody lent me an LP of Joni Mitchell's Hissing of Summer Lawns sort of changed my life. felt in that moment when I heard her, this is my voice. This is, she is reflecting who I am. And I think that that's what engages young people uh, with music. And they say that the music that's most powerful for us, us, for the lifespan, is something that we heard, I think, in our early, late teens, early 20s. Oh, my. I don't know know why it's that period. For classical music, I was... um, I always loved new music, and Jan de Gaetani uh, singing George Crumb, I was sort of obsessed with it. I loved something, I would listen to it over and over and over again for days. It was a surefire way to ruin a record or, frankly, (laughs) unspool a cassette tape, you know? But, you know, how exciting, I I think, to love something that much. My colleagues at CPR Classical apparently often ask artists this question, and I'm eager to hear how you answer. What do you think distinguishes your voice, your instrument, from the others out there? Well, I think every voice is distinguishable by timbre. So, you know, if you're going to be a successful singer, it really helps if you have a recognizable sound that somebody in two bars would hear, would know that's Renee Fleming. Mm. So, I mean, somebody told me when I was 18 and at a summer program, they said, you have that. Of course, I didn't understand it at the time, but it's it's true. It is helpful. Um, I have a very broad repertoire and the heart of it has never been sort of bread and butter major Italian roles because I don't I didn't have that type of voice. So for people who are, you know, who like certainly Strauss has been at, at the center of it. So so a lot of of what's made me who I am has been the the breadth of the repertoire. I would say. Well, uh, thanks so much for talking to us. Welcome back to Colorado. Thank you. Lovely talking to you. Thank you so much. Renee Fleming stars in the brightness of light. Friday and Sunday at Denver's Betcher Concert Hall. Happy birthday, Claude Monet. He would have been 179. And his work just happens to be at the Denver Art Museum right now. The exhibition features more than 120 paintings collected from around the world, some of them quite fragile. So getting them to Denver was a challenge. 
CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf explored the complicated and exacting process to put the collection together. Felistas Klein scans the Monet painting with a magnifier and bright lights. What I'm doing is comparing the outgoing condition report with now the condition of the painting after the travel. And I'm comparing the losses, the cracks, if something has changed. That condition report, it's kind of like when you get a rental car and you note all the dings, but these reports are vastly more detailed. Klein is examining every inch of the painting. It looks good. Okay. Maybe we check the frame now. Okay. The frame also fared well. It's really a big relief because some of the paintings are fragile, so we are really happy to have them here and in such a good condition. This painting's trip was long. It made its way from Germany via plane and a climate-controlled crate, landing in San Francisco. From there, it was loaded onto a semi. The truck is also climate-controlled. And rode to Denver, about a 24-hour trip. Klein was with it the whole way. I'm sitting on the truck, and if there would be an accident or something, I could witness it. Klein says over the 25 years she's done this work, she's never had a catastrophe. Once Klein finishes her evaluation, two art handlers step in. The next part happens fast. They slide the table toward the wall, lift the work off the table, hang it, and make sure it's straight. The curator gives a nod, on to the next. The Denver Art Museum's massive Monet exhibition features works from more than 70 lenders across 15 countries. That's a lot of art to make travel arrangements for. And humans as well. Denver Art Museum Registrar Sarah Cuccinella-McDaniel has been referred to as the mastermind behind all of the logistics. She's spent the past few years, yes, years, organizing travel plans for the loaned Monets and the couriers accompanying them. It is a lot. There are many, many spreadsheets. A big first step is to make sure the pieces are insured. That's paperwork and money. The federal government has a program that reduces the cost for insuring international exhibitions. Next, Cuccinella McDaniel books the travel. And for international loans, that involves customs. We work with foreign agents to clear customs on both sides. You don't want snafus at the border or ports of entry. She also works with the State Department for proof that this cargo is of cultural significance. That way it won't be seized. We've coordinated with the embassies at all of these countries of things that are importing. I thought I turned everything off. That is my customs broker. Do you get to know your customs broker pretty well? We are very good friends. We talk at all hours of day and night. The Monets mainly travel by plane and by truck. We work exclusively with companies that do fine art transport. So all of their drivers are trained to handle high-value goods. First rule. Don't leave the art unattended. That means no motel parking lots for overnight stops. So two drivers take turns. And we lock and seal the trucks, and then they drive straight through. Cuccinella McDaniel had these arrivals carefully planned out. On one day, nine Monet shipments were scheduled to arrive with museum staff ready to meet them. But the day unexpectedly started around 1.45 a.m. When the loading dock called to tell me that a truck had arrived on the dock, three hours early. They couldn't scramble together the staff at that hour. We talked with our security and decided that they could just stay under a security watch. Cuccinella McDaniel says the logistics of art transit haven't changed much in the decade she's been doing this work. But she has gotten a heck of a lot busier, as more and more art is jet-setting around the globe. 
she says it's easy to get caught up in the chaos of this profession. And forget, like, I am in the presence of a Monet that most people haven't even seen on a wall, and I'm looking at it under magnification. This is a pretty unique experience. When the show closes, all of the art will come down. And many works will go through another rigorous travel plan to arrive at their next stop, the Museum Barberini in Germany. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. Claude Monet, The Truth of Nature, runs through February 2nd at the Denver Art Museum. Now, what happens after you die? This isn't a religious story. It's about your digital afterlife, social media accounts, email, online banking. Jed Brubaker thinks a lot about this. He's an assistant professor of information science at CU Boulder and has consulted for years with Facebook, including on this issue of a digital afterlife. Jed, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Your interest in this subject started in 2009 when Facebook launched a seemingly innocuous campaign to reconnect people with old friends. What happened? Sure. It was unfortunately right around Halloween. Um, and all of a sudden, people started getting these notifications telling them, as you said, to reconnect with old friends. Uh, Facebook had this idea that they could help people who hadn't fully integrated or connected with people on the platform find people, get back on the platform, you know, create that network that really is what Facebook is about. However, it turns out there's a group of people that weren't using the platform for a very good reason. And when Facebook was paying attention to who wasn't inactive and encouraging people to reach out to them, well, some dead people got pulled up in that net as well. In other words, you haven't been in touch with so-and-so. That's because they're dead. Exactly. And so this would have been incredibly offensive to the people receiving those notifications. Uh, is the answer to delete an account? What is the answer? You know, historically, that's how technology companies have approached this. But it's pretty clear in our research at CU Boulder that that's not what you should do. There might have been a time where you wrap up an account and think about it like a bank account, but our social media accounts, they're not just a place to store money. They're a place where we store our memories. And so just deleting them actually can be just as painful for people. We talk about it as a kind of second death. Indeed, I have seen Facebook pages that have become, for years after someone's death, ongoing memorials. There's a page I comment on when I think of this particular person. Sure. And this is an experience that many, many people have. And one of the reasons why Facebook's actually been pretty proactive, especially compared to other technology companies, to support these types of experiences. Help us understand how you maintain privacy and security after death. And that that sounds like a ludicrous question, but it's the natural question of passwords, who has access to them, uh, who has the rights to manage a page after someone dies. It gets into all kinds of ethical concerns. Sure. There's ethical concerns. There's policy concerns. There's also straight up computer security concerns. Uh, And this was a lot of what Facebook was wrestling with in 2015 and the few years prior as they were preparing and then eventually launched a feature called Legacy Contact. Indeed, Legacy Contact's a feature that lets you select someone that you trust who can care for your profile and those memories and your network of friends after you've passed away. So one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that 
these accounts, as I said, they're not similar to bank accounts. They're, they're kind of representations of who we are. And so it actually can be really confusing and detrimental if we, for example, just give someone a username and password. There's many scenarios in which people end up doing something, clicking on something, and all of a sudden, grandma is alive and kicking on Facebook, even though we all know she's not. And that can be distressing as well. So there's a delicate balance. Yeah, and you, you just have to convey the right message sure. and have the right tools to do so. Uh, You talked about Facebook in this regard being ahead of the curve. Help us understand what other social media companies are dealing with. But beyond that, to bank accounts and to all of the... I mean, I, I look at my sheet of passwords now and I think of how many digital accounts I have sure. and how much that is to manage after death. We all have a ton of them. For the and living. It's, it's really important to have them all put together, particularly in a place where someone who you know, trust, maybe a significant other, uh, close relative, could take care of things as they need to be taken care of. Uh, but there are concerns, particularly on uh, social media, around um, identity theft is one we hear about in the lab. And people wanting to figure out how to secure these spaces, even as they preserve the memory of the people that they love, and that's the approach that they've taken at Facebook. So are you recommending that people essentially have a, an advanced directive for their social media? I think it's really important to have an advanced directive for most parts of your life, uh-huh. including social media. But I think a really important thing that everyone needs to pay attention to here is that these are not trivial accounts. We hop on them and we post things here and there, and they can seem trivial, but they're not. Even what's trivial to you ends up being really important and special, even sacred to those who uh, leave behind. And those memories are important for them as they connect to and remember, just as you were saying with your friend. How are, I don't know, Google and Twitter wrestling with this? So historically, most technology companies, when they found out that someone had died, they simply just deleted the account. And This is largely for policy and legal reasons. You click after not reading those terms of agreement. Uh Uh, You click, I agree, but the person who's made the agreement is no longer around to be in that agreement. But that's not really the case anymore. And what we see is kind of a almost incoherent space. Um, Google has ways of setting up what's called the inactive um, account manager that just pays attention. And if you haven't logged in for a while, it suspects that maybe we should give access to someone else. And then you can imagine that would be helpful in the case of death or other scenarios as well. But most other companies don't have a lot of policy going on here. How, How does that begin to change? Well, I think one, it begins to change through awareness, through conversations like this. It's also something that's time will come and is coming now. It's kind of hard to remember that Facebook only started in 2004. And it's really interesting now that these technology companies have gotten large enough that they're not just paying attention to whether they can survive for the next week or the next month or year. We actually now can start thinking about social media accounts in terms of lifespans and Mm. generations, which is a totally different way of thinking about it. Yeah. It sounds to me like a lot of the responsibility is placed in your mind on digital consumers as much as the companies themselves. Do you think that's true? Hmm. You know, I think it's important for us to decide what we want. And this actually is a, a kind of a tricky uh, question. And right. Issue this in is this actually space. a question you've been asking people. Right. What, what do you want of your data after you die? What are you hearing? Well, so this is what we, so in the lab, we call this the postmortem paradox. Okay. Um, and rather than... Uh, Well, pretty straightforward. What we found is that when we talk to people about 
other accounts, the accounts they visit, they care about them a ton. They're so important, they're precious, and they want to honor their deceased loved one's memories. But then when we ask them, typically right on the heels of the same interview, what do they want done with their own account? Your own accounts. They say, I don't care, I'm not going to be around. I totally get that. Yeah, I do too. But this is a really interesting challenge for technology. It means that the people who care the most do not have the functionality to make choices. And the people who care the least, the account holders, they're the ones who do. They even retain power in death, in a way. But they aren't necessarily motivated to do anything. Okay, we have about a minute. What are some practical steps, then, that you'd suggest people take? Practical step number one Like, is, it would be a weird Facebook post for me this morning to say, guys, here's what I want when I die, you know. Well, why would that be weird? Uh, it might be a, seen as a cry for help, but I suppose if it's pr- phrased properly. So I think the real issue here is that maybe we need to stop considering these things as weird. Hmm. But that also coincides with a broader step back. We need to take a step back. Only 48% of U.S. Americans who should have a will actually have a will. So everyone needs to get on that and take care of the things that we already know how to take care of. Mm-hmm. And built into that, we should start thinking about these new kinds of assets and resources. I see. You uh, believe this is connected to a larger conversation we aren't necessarily having about death. Yeah. Yeah. This has been fascinating. Jed, thanks so much. You're welcome. Chad Brubaker is an assistant professor of information science at CU Boulder. He studies the digital afterlife. We spoke originally in May. That's the end of us for today. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News.